to everyone who's out tonight. Back in the 1980s, um, there was, I suppose they're still going, but I'm not sure. But anyway, there was a choir, a professional choir, and uh, put out an album that I happened to get, and it had these two songs arranged. They actually... um, there are additional lyrics to both of these. We don't, in, in fact, in our small book, 932 has one other verse, if I remember right, of the first song. Nonetheless, there are additional lyrics, but they put out a version that is kind of like what Wes just led and did a great job doing it. Um, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. I still do. It, it, uh, the Greg Nelson Singers, if you guys anybody's interested and wants to look that up. The Greg Nelson singer is doing Holy Ground anyway, and it is a cappella, by the way. But nonetheless, um, it made me, some of the lyrics, and we're going to look at them tonight, because you know throughout the year, in keeping with our theme, Be Holy for I Am Holy, I've been looking at various songs that we sing, some of them that we commonly sing, one or two that maybe we don't sing so much, but looking at some of the lyrics... And especially some of these songs that have lines within them or maybe whole thoughts that we perhaps don't think that much about. And that would be the case with with these two songs. So I want to take a look at it tonight. If you want to open your song books back up to 932.33, I'm, I'm going to look at those songs, look at the lyrics. Obviously not a lot of lyrics, but I'm going to look at them. But I want to stress two main points. In the first one, to look at 932, this is holy ground. We're standing on holy ground. For the Lord is present, and where he is, is holy. I want to stress the point, or emphasize the point, that wherever God is, is holy. It's something that God obviously expressed to Moses, Stephen quoting that, or or, uh, reflecting upon that event from Exodus 3. But God stressed it to Moses as Moses came upon the mountain. And Moses came into the presence of God. And God said, take, you know, take your shoes off, take your sandals off your feet, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, whoever has arranged this song has taken that idea and basically said, when you, as an individual, are in the presence of God, and especially I think the idea of the song is that whenever we come together, we meet together, such as this, when we are worshiping God, we are in His presence, and this is holy ground. You may have noticed in the bulletin I asked the question, and I'm not really going to answer it. I'm going to leave it for you to think about. But is, should we consider this, even this place, should we consider it holy ground when we come together to worship such as we are doing tonight? Let's start off by saying this. Go with me to a passage that we hear often quoted in Matthew 18. I sometimes think that Matthew 18, well, no, let me back up and say it the way I really feel. (laughs) I think a lot of times Matthew 18, verse 20 is an abused passage. It is very easy for someone, regardless of their circumstance, I come from a place, West comes from a place, it's unlike this one up here, there are a lot of churches where we come from, in West's county, in Limestone County, um, I don't know, West is over 50 anyway, aren't there? There's a bunch. And I used to make this observation when I preached in that county that there were whatever number, there were 53 or something like that, I think, when I preached there. I said there are 53 churches. When people would ask how many churches of Christ are there down there in that county, and I said, well, I think there's like 53, and maybe half of them shouldn't be here, you know. 
And the reason why is because it becomes very easy down there. It is. It has long since been the case where their personality differences or whatever, and so not in a good nature or a good manner, not like the church that just started down in South Jersey where people kind of swarm to that area and set up a congregation. That's a great thing. But where people just get miffed at each other. They don't like each other. They get upset at each other. Perhaps sometimes doctrinal issues, etc., and they split. Now, why am I saying all that? Why am I talking about all of that? Because Matthew 18 is often used to basically say anytime two Christians come together in any place, then the Lord is in the midst of them, and that makes it, you know, that makes it right. It kind of puts a stamp of approval on it. I think there are a lot of different reasons where Jesus would say, no, I don't want any part of that. One of those is kind of like the situation I just described. It's because I get mad at somebody and I take a group of people and I go off to another place and start a church. It doesn't mean Jesus is, you know, approving of that. Now, there are reasons for that sometimes. And don't misunderstand. There can be legitimate reasons for it. There can also be illegitimate reasons. And I need to reconsider that. When you look at Matthew 18 and verse 20, in a context of the authority of Jesus being exercised, and we're, you know, this is a passage, if you notice, from verse 15, we're talking about withdrawal of fellowship, a very serious thing. But then he will go on to say the apostles, as a group of people, will bind and loose what he, Jesus, has authorized from heaven. And then he will say, if you notice, in verse 19, and again I'll say, anything you request, and I think he's speaking to them, I'll back you up in that, I'll answer that, I'll grant that for, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name. But in my name becomes crucial. We have to have the authority of Jesus to come together. So if I'm doing something that isn't right, you know, for example, let's say that uh, I knew some guys back in the 80s, and uh, they like to go fishing. And that's a big thing down in Alabama. It's a state with, you guys may not know this, but I think it's the state with the most rivers, or at least most bridges anyway, in America. A lot of rivers, a lot of fishing. And long story short, these guys would go out fishing, but since they happened to be members of the church and they were out on Sunday morning, they'd take their bread and they'd take their fruit of the vine so they could take a break in the fishing, kind of watching the lines, but, you know, have the Lord's Supper. And when you would question that, they said, well, where two or three are gathered in my name. And so I got to looking at that verse and I said, yeah, it's, uh, the, the point is in my name. I'm not sure Jesus authorizes us to go bass fishing and take a break, you know, for church on Sunday morning. But when we look at this passage, there is something being said here. And that is where two or three are gathered together in my name, when it is right, when it is authorized, when Jesus is behind it and supportive of it, then notice the phrase, there am I in the midst of them. And it's very important for us to understand that when I come together, obviously authorized to do so, but when I come together as we have tonight, or as we did this morning and gathered around the table, that Jesus is in our midst. That means I'm among them. I'm there, is what Jesus is saying. Maybe we don't think about that often. Maybe we do. And, and I don't know, because I don't know how you think or what goes on in your mind or your heart as we're doing these various acts of worship that we do. But we should remember that Jesus is in our midst. And so this is holy ground, because he's here. And just as much as God said to Moses, I'm here on, mount, on the mountain with you, and so take your shoes off, it's holy, the Lord is here. Now, 
we could back up and say, well, the Lord is present everywhere, isn't he? And that's right. I'm not going to really belabor this point tonight. But if you turn to Psalm 139, David would say, where, where could I go to get away from your presence? Could I go to the highest high? Could I go to the lowest low? If I did that, you'd still be there. And so we speak of the omnipresence or all presence of God. And that's true. And the Bible would emphasize to us in such passages as Job 34 or Hebrews 4.13 that we are naked and open before him. Every thought, every idea, every action certainly, we're in the presence of God. He's aware of it. But I don't think that's what this song is talking about. I think it is more the idea that we were talking about from Matthew 18.20. And that is when we are together as two or three or more individuals in the authority or under the authority of Jesus gathered together. It can be for an action, like withdrawal of fellowship, or it can be for an assembly, like we are doing tonight. But if we are, Jesus is present with us. I think it exactly hits, if you're in the book of Matthew, go to chapter 26. I believe the song is exactly hitting at this idea, though. When we look at the Lord's Supper, and I think about this passage sometimes, and I think about what Jesus says, if you look at Matthew 26 and verse 29, it should be, You'll notice it's in what we call the institution of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus is, at this point, distributing the fruit of the vine. And we'll say, for example, and pick up in 27, he took the cup, he gave thanks for it, he gave it to them, that is, the, the apostles, of course, and he said, all of you drink of it, or drink from it. Then he said, this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, but I say unto you, notice verse 29, I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth from this point on. I won't drink of this fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, what we understand is that what Jesus is saying is, I'm instituting this Lord's Supper. The kingdom would come about 50 days later in what we call Pentecost when the church was established. Jesus, when members of the church from that very first Sunday began observing the Lord's Supper, Jesus is saying, I'll be there with you. I'll be drinking it with you. I'll be taking part in the worship. During, during this quarter, during this quarter, I want to emphasize the fact that we worship, we obviously worship God, but I want to emphasize the fact that we worship Jesus. We specifically worship the Son of God. Wes led some songs tonight, and they were beautiful songs. All hail the power of Jesus' name. A song like that, where we sing praise directly to Jesus. Worship of Him. And for obvious reasons. Our King, our Master, as Wes intimated this morning in the lesson. You know, He is the one that is the King of Kings. Ultimately, our citizenship is in heaven. Ultimately, He is the one that we submit to, we bow down to, we worship, we serve. And I don't think any of us are divided on that. He is the one to whom all praise, all glory, all majesty, etc. belongs. Well, what Jesus is saying is, while that is true, I'll be there with you as you are worshiping. Now, obviously, he's not going to be in physical form. We're not going to see him. But I wonder sometimes how many times we think about that. If I'm thinking in terms of what I'm doing, what I'm thinking about, etc., etc., let me back up and say it like this so we don't miss the point. 
The person that maybe you respect the most, the person, someone you honor, if they happen to come and they were a guest at church, let's say this morning, Unless they want some dignitary, somebody everybody in the world knows. And they happen to just walk in here and sit down on the pew. It could be a celebrity, it could be anyone. But they sat down on the pew and they happen to sit close to you. My question would be this. While you're singing your songs, while you're taking the Lord's Supper, while you're doing, you know, when we're praying and so forth, would there be any extra attention that you might give to how you're doing what you're doing? In other words... Would you make sure that when you pray, if they, if you knew they might cast a look over at you, you'd want your head bowed, you know. Well, when the sermon's going on, you want your attention given because, you know, you're thinking in terms of, I wouldn't want to see them, you know, see, I wouldn't want them to see me kind of looking all around or talking to some friend or whatever it might be as though this is not important. I, I'd really want to be on my best behavior. While you're taking the Lord's Supper, would there be maybe any added reverence or dignity about the way you go through the action of taking the supper. You see what I'm saying there. The point is, some celebrity or earthly dignity is not here. That I know of, they were not here this morning, but Jesus was. And whatever I did was in His presence. And I think that's what this song is getting at. This is holy ground. This is... I'm standing in a place that is holy, and the reason it is, is not because it's our church, or it's, you know, this or that. It is because Jesus is here, and we're in his presence. You know, that isn't the only passage that says that. For example, if you go over to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'd like for you to turn over there with me. You'll notice in Hebrews 2, for example, he's talking about singing. So as we were singing a moment ago... I wonder, I, I imagine this, you know, when we're, sing, we're singing a song like This is Holy Ground, and, you know, we're talking about Jesus, and we're acknowledging the fact that Jesus, we're in Jesus' presence, He's in our midst, and we're singing about that, and we're thinking about that, I wonder what goes on in the mind of the Lord. How does He feel about it? He has feelings. He thinks about things like that. Well, notice this in Hebrews chapter 2. And, uh, oh, whoops, I turned to Hebrews 12, because 12 is the verse, but Hebrews 2 is the chapter. So we'll go back with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and notice, down in verse, uh, let's start in verse 11. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified. Now again, the one who makes us holy, and those who are made holy, are all of one. For which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's our brother. We are his brothers and sisters. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name. That is Jesus speaking to the Father. Literally singing because it comes from the Psalms. I will declare thy name among the the, uh, brethren. And he said, in the midst of the church will I sing praise to thee. So let me get this straight, Jesus. What's going on is when we are gathered together and we are singing, you are here with us, not just observing But you are taking part and you are singing praise. That's exactly what he's saying. And if the psalm be true, and I'm sure it is, that's exactly what he is telling us is going on. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee, Jesus says. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So when I think about that and I look at this song, this is holy ground. We're standing on holy ground. For the Lord is present and where He is, anywhere He is, is holy.
where two or three are gathered together in my name. And that's the crucial part. Right there is where I will be. Among them, with them, even as we see here in the singing, joining in with them. The Lord's Supper, our singing, our worship to Jesus. Now, let's go to the second lesser known song that Wes led, 933. The lyrics within this song, we are standing on holy ground. Now listen carefully because there are probably a couple ideas we don't talk about, not a lot anyway. We're standing on holy ground and I know, I know that there are angels all around. I don't know if you've ever caught that and then thought about, well, I'm not sure about all that. You know, a lot of attention given to angels these days, you know, talking about angels, almost angel worship, maybe actually angel worship, etc. There are angels all around. Let us praise, he says. Praise him. Now, obviously, we're referring back to Jesus again. Let us praise, praise him now. If you looked at the full song, that would be easy to see that we were talking about God there. For we are standing in his presence on holy ground. Let's talk about that, especially the phrase, I know that there are angels all around. Go back with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, and let's go back to Matthew 18, where we were a little earlier. The New Testament doesn't tell us much about angels and our relationship with angels. It tells us, you know, some, maybe not a great deal, but it does tell us some. But it does indicate to us, and I'll say it like that, you can agree or disagree with whatever, to whatever degree that you personally believe about this. But while it doesn't tell us much, it does indicate that, there, that, that angels are involved in our lives. Maybe I'll just say it that way. For example, look at Matthew 18 down in verse 10. Jesus is talking about one person offending or causing another to stumble. And he says in verse 10, Take heed that you despise not, that is, disregard would be our idea. That you don't have disregard for one of these little ones. For I say unto you, that in heaven, and notice the personal here, pronoun, their angels do always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now let's break that down for a second. I'm not going to try to talk about all kinds of things that I don't have a clue about. But I just want to look at the language for a moment. Jesus is talking about a situation on earth where someone or ones would be causing a a Christian. And that obviously is the context here. Someone who's humbled himself as a little child would be causing a Christian to stumble. Obviously not do right, sin, etc. And in heaven, this is being watched. And according to Jesus, what's being seen is this action going on on earth, but not just by God. Notice he talks about the angels. And what he says is, in heaven, their angels, that is, the angels of these being caused to stumble, their angels are always beholding the face of my Father who is in heaven. And the only way I can understand that is if it has to do with the incident, and you could picture this, have you ever witnessed, and I know we all have, have you ever been a bystander where something was going on that was just terrible? Somebody was treating somebody else horribly. You're not personally involved. You're kind of the bystander watching this, but it's so bad that it makes you feel terrible. 
You maybe are embarrassed for one of the, or more of the individuals. You hurt for one or more of the individuals. It's not you. You're not being affected in that sense, but you're watching it and watching it so closely, you can't help but be emotionally involved. I think that's exactly what Jesus is describing. Whatever is going on on earth where an offense that is causing someone to stumble, causing someone to do wrong, or lose heart, or lose faith, or whatever... That what is it's being watched and it's being seen by the angels who in turn notice, who are beholding the face of his father. Have you ever been in that situation where you're watching this and you're feeling terrible and there are other people that are bystanders as well? The natural inclination, and I'm sure we all do it, is start looking over at other people. You know, are you seeing this? Do you believe this? How do you feel about this? Maybe no words are said. But you're looking at them to see if they feel as terrible about this situation as you feel. I believe Jesus is saying that's exactly what's going on with their angels. And we could talk all day long about what that means. And the truth is God just doesn't tell us a lot about that. But he's describing a situation here. Now let's go a little further. Look over at Hebrews chapter 1, because he says several things about the angels in Hebrews 1. He is talking about, if we look at that in Hebrews 1 and 2, he is talking about Jesus. And he's talking about the superiority of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. And he is very clearly saying in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is so much greater and that he is the one to be worshipped. And he makes a comparison to the angels when he he will say, for example, in verse 7, Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers are servants of flame of fire. Now notice, he has just said in verse 6, when he brings Jesus, the first begotten, into the world, he has just said, let all the angels of God worship him. And then he turns his attention to the angels, and basically what, what he says of the angels is, they worship Jesus, they are servants. Now he goes further with that, though, if you look down in verse 13. To which of the angels said he at any time? We would say probably, did he ever say, to who, what angel did he ever say this? Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, none. Back in Psalm 110, who he said that to was Jesus. And it was that exalting Jesus to his throne. That is so often quoted, quoted in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, etc. Did he ever say that to an angel? No, he never did. But verse 14, the writer of Hebrews asks us yet another question about the angels. Are they, the angels, are they not all ministering spirits? Ministering meaning serving spirits. They're definitely spirits. They have no physical body as you and I have. They are spirits. But they're all ministering spirits. They're all serving spirits. Notice this phrase, though. Sent forth to minister, to serve them. Minister for them, serve them, who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, it's not hard because he goes on immediately and talks about heirs of salvation or people who believe the gospel and so forth in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. So he's talking about Christians there. And what he is saying of the angels is they are not on the throne, they are not to be worshipped, rather they are spirits who are sent by God to serve. Now I tell you, 
When you add that together with what it says in Matthew 18, you don't know a lot. You don't know what an angel looks like. You don't know when an angel is here, when he's not here. You know, you don't know when he's been sent, when he hasn't been sent. There are a whole lot of things you don't know. But one thing you do know is that they observe, they see, and they are even utilized by God to help. He sends them to serve. So I don't know what they do. The person says, well, if they're sent to help, what do they do? I don't know. We've never told that. Not to us personally. We are told some things they're sent to do throughout the Old Testament, for example. But not, not this. And yet, when the song says, I know that there are angels all around. Well, that's true. If God sends them forth to minister or to serve those who are heirs of salvation, they're here. In some sense, in some capacity. We don't see them. We don't feel them. We certainly don't worship them. But the song is right. If the song had gone on to say something they do or had asked us to worship, well, then it would, it would be wrong. We shouldn't sing that song. But it doesn't. It just says, I know there are angels all around. It is interesting to me as well. If you go back to the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians several times mentions angels. And it always mentions them not in the sense of, here's what they do. But it always mentions them as to say, they're there. They're watching. So let's look at a couple of examples of that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and down in verse, oh, verse 9. When Paul says, and you may notice in the context, Paul is talking about how he and the apostles are kind of on display. The world makes a spectacle out of them and all of that. Well, he says down in verse 9, I think that God has set forth the apostles, notice, last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle, a gazing stock, some translations say, unto the world, and to angels, and to men. Okay, what does that say? They're watching. Here were the apostles going about doing their work. And they were being ridiculed, and all of the ill treatment that they received, and if history... That's recorded it be true. Eleven out of twelve of them, or twelve out of thirteen rather, of them being even martyred, put to death for what they were doing. And what Paul is saying is, we're a gazing stock. We're something to be stared at, looked at, watched. People are doing that. God is certainly doing that. But so are the angels. They're watching. It is interesting also, if you turn a page and you look at chapter 6, and you realize that the standard of judgment to angels, obviously there are two groups of angels. We, might, we think of angels, we think of these you know, beautiful, wonderful creatures, and they are, but the demons are there too. The sinful angels, the angels that didn't keep their first estate, and they fell and all of that. Well, look at chapter 6 and, and uh, down in verses 2 and 3. When he's saying to Christians who ought to be able to settle problems between themselves... Because they sit in a position of judgment. And don't you know, verse 3, that we, Paul says, we Christians shall judge angels. They're watching. They're seeing. If you've got a demon out there, and he's watching what's going on in this, in this world, in this life. Satan is watching what is going on in this world. And he is seeing a person, perhaps, who never gets a break. A Christian. Never gets a break. Things just don't go 
you know, right for this person as we would think of it. They suffer, they hurt, they're sick, they're this, they're that. And yet they won't give their faith up. And they won't rebel against God. And they won't stop being a Christian. And they go right through the rest of their life. And everything they go through, they just keep coming back to God. And they stay with God. And God says, you see that person? They're not even here. But you were. Right in my presence. You were with me. You saw me in all the glory I'm in. And you rebelled. But that poor, pitiful human being. They didn't. That's the standard of judgment. They watch. They see. You may wonder sometimes. You may have said to yourself at some time, does anybody see what I go through? Now, I've said that. I don't know if you ever have, but I surely have. All alone by myself, you know. And it's like, does anybody see what I go through? Oh, yeah. God sees it. The angels see it. Satan sees it. The demons see it. Nobody else ever did what a stand for God that is when you say no to Satan and yes to God. I'll give you another one, the strangest one to me in the book that I have no clue what it's talking about, and I will uh, easily say that to you. But over in 1 Corinthians 11, when you're just talking about this role of men and women and it's addressing this whole idea of you know, covering the head, not covering the head, and all of that. But right in the middle of that, if you'll notice, he says in verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have power or authority on her head. And that's not our point tonight, but this is. Because of the angels. A person might look at that and say, well, what difference does that make to the angels? They're watching. They're seeing. There is something there. Whatever it may. And they're seeing it. Now we could go on with that, but I'm not going to belabor the point. The point is that in the New Testament, the New Testament talks about the presence of angels. And there is a point to it. And the point to it is my faithfulness means something. We could go to many passages, but I'll cite one more. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not our fight. That's not our battle. But it is with. And he names, he gives all kinds of terms there that address those, I believe, those powers of the air, as the New Testament puts it. They're watching. They're observing. It makes a difference. So, we're standing on holy ground. And I know, I know that there are angels all around. So, what do we do? Everybody's watching. That is, all of heaven, all the demonic forces of Satan, everybody's watching. What do we do? We praise Jesus. We take our stand for Jesus. We praise Him, we honor Him, we bow down before Him, we give Him clearly all the worship that is due Him. Now, obviously, we don't worship angels. Please don't misunderstand. I am not saying to worship. In fact, it is wrong. And I would say the same thing to anyone that the angel said himself to John when John wanted to fall on his knees. Get up. I'm just a servant. Don't bow down to me. No, our choice is to worship Jesus. And he should be elevated. In a time when we talk about, you know, people we adore and we love and we we fall down to and prostrate ourselves before, Jesus is the only one deserving of that. King of kings, Lord of lords, the one to whom all majesty ascribe. 
as the song says and as scripture says. So let us praise Jesus now, is what the song says. Let's close with this idea. Jesus is to be worshipped specifically. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 5. We often turn to passages like Ephesians 5, and we turn there to talk about, you know, singing a cappella and, and that kind of thing to get our authority for that. But let's not miss the point. When we look at Ephesians 5 and verse 19, read it together with me. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as we have done tonight, singing to each other and, and certainly singing to heaven. But speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, but notice the phrase, to the Lord. The idea of worship and song, everything that we sing, everything we do when we're worshiping, it is to the Lord, to Jesus. I want you to turn a few pages over to Colossians 3, and we find a parallel passage there, but let's look at it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in verse 16, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, warning each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now notice this, singing with grace or favor in your hearts to the Lord. Our worship is spoken with grace, with favor to Jesus. We, we sing songs about Jesus. We, we sang one tonight, and I'm trying to, oh, my Jesus, I love you. We sang that song. We just sang it. Did we sing that tonight or this morning? We sang it, though. <laughs> so, my Jesus, I love you. And it's a beautiful little song. I mean, it's a short song, and it's a simple song. And yet, it's just saying very simply, you know what, Jesus, you're mine, and I love you. It's that love we have for those we know are ours. That's my wife, my husband, my child, my brother, my sister, my mother, my father. And we feel that personal attachment. And then when we say, my whomever, I love you. There is all of that familial feeling, all of that family you know, attachment to the person that's coming out. But there is that deep love. That love that we know means so much. That love that, you know, at a moment's notice, we would sacrifice. Because we are so close. My Jesus. You are my Jesus. And I love you. I love you for everything you've done. I love you for everything you are. I said to you a few weeks ago, and I'm in it. Any time over the past 40 years that my faith ever started to waver, I knew what to do. Let's go back to the Gospels. Let's go back and look at Jesus. Because I can't go back and look at Jesus. I can't be reminded of Jesus. Not just of what He did and the miracles He performed, but it's, it's how He treated people. It's how He loved people. It's the things that He did that, that I have to work so hard at doing that He just naturally did. Because He is God. He has made us. He loves us. The truth is, He loves me. And He wants me. He accepts me. All of that terminology. My Jesus, I love you. When we look at passages like this and we sing these songs to Him, it is all of that we're expressing. We are in a holy place. And I don't just mean the building. I mean the, the environment in which we have come together because we have all come together to worship Jesus. And worshiping Jesus is an expression of love to Him. If you think about it, 
Every act of worship involves a very specific worship praise of Jesus. You know, you go back to the Lord's Supper, and I was talking about that earlier. There am I in the midst of them. When we go to a funeral, and, you know, we are having the funeral proceedings and so forth, the people that knew the person, that loved the person the most and all of that, a lot of times they will get up and say things. And sometimes that's coupled with, and sometimes that's done by maybe a preacher or whatever who says that for them. But in all of that, we call that the eulogy. Now, eulogy in the original language, it, it, the you part is good, the logy part is word. It's a good word. And what you're doing in a funeral like that, whether it's, it's you're a friend or a family member or you're the preacher, you're remembering the good about the individual and you're telling it. You know, my grandmother was good, and I said some of those kind of things. And I talked about some of the things she had done and why I loved her so much. I said a good word about her. Do you realize that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, you go back to Matthew 26 and look at this, and and I think it's in verse 26. But when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he didn't teach us to just thank God for the bread that represents The body. The body created by the Father or prepared by the Father for Jesus to give specifically in sacrifice. He didn't say just be thankful for it. What he literally said was he blessed it and he thanked God for it. Now those are two different terms. And the term bless is he eulogized it. Now someone has said this is kind of like a funeral or kind of like the proceedings that go on in a funeral. We're talking about a death here. It's the death of Jesus. And we're specifically remembering the body and the blood that Jesus gave. And when we talk about that body that was prepared by God and given in sacrifice, all of the horrible things that Jesus went through, we ought to eulogize it. Every time we gather, and of course we do a good job of that here, don't misunderstand. I mean, we dedicate time to that. But it should be talked about. He should be Not just thanked, but blessed, eulogized for what he has done. That someone notices, somebody, you know, all of this sacrifice. How would you, as an individual, like to be a person who makes great sacrifice for someone, gives everything you have day and night for someone, and have them not be thankful at all? Never say a good word about it. If somebody ever says, you know, are you blessed? Do you have, you know, what are your parents like? Or what are your children like? Or whatever it might be. And you you got no good word to say. How would you like to be the person that's given everything and there's never a good word? It, it, it's horrible. You're inclined as a human being. And remember, he is human. You're inclined as a human being to say... Well, didn't it mean anything to you? I mean, I mean, aren't you, aren't you, you know, don't you just overflow? I mean, there's nothing there. Is that what you're telling me? I can't imagine. And I've been in a couple of places where I thought this was the case, but I can't imagine. And, and I mean, visited there. I want you to understand that. But I can't imagine being a member of a church that comes together week after week. And it's time for the Lord's Supper, and they just kind of go up there and and road just repeat a few words that they've heard every week, and then just pass it out, and everybody kind of takes it. You know, 
Okay, now we're past that. Let's get on with it. I can't imagine being part of such a place. In fact, I think I'd have some things to say about it. And in fact, what I would be saying is, people, don't you understand what this is about? This is holy ground. We're standing on holy ground. Let's praise Jesus. Let's let the world know that there are a group of people who do appreciate it, who have something good to say about it. When my grandmother died, there was no way in this world I was going to let her have a funeral and talk about her life without talking about all the sacrifices she had made. She earned that. She deserved that. And she deserved for people to remember what she had done. The choices she made for other people, for me, when she could have made selfish choices. Well, in a much greater sense, Jesus deserves that. We're standing in his presence on holy ground. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That indeed he did all of these things and deserves all of this praise. And tonight, you'd be willing to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to change my life. I want to live my life for Jesus. I want to acknowledge Him and praise Him. And I know that as I live my life, I'm in the presence of the great Son of God. I want to be baptized because Jesus has said, if you'll be baptized, then all your sins will be washed away. And I want to do that. And I want to go on from this hour tonight praising Him with my life, living my life in just complete adoration, appreciation of everything He's done. If you want to do that, please come while we stand